You're listening to The Local Maximum, Episode 4. You're sitting around with nothing to do, so why don't you leave a five-star review? If you know me personally and you want to help me grow this audience, that's something that you can do on iTunes along with subscribing to the show and sharing it with friends on social media. And in person. It's always better in person. Now, a lot of you out there are new to the show, I know, and you don't know me personally, so I understand that I'm going to have to earn your positive reviews and your support by making this show better and better and making it something that you look forward to listening to every week. If you have some feedback for me and what I can do to improve the experience, or if you have some ideas for topics or guests, email the show at localmaxradio at gmail.com. And please keep listening. We have a lot of great guests coming up. Uh, I'm hoping to get Christian Lundqvist. I don't know if I pronounce his name right, but I'll get it from him correctly. But he, Christian is the person who I always go to with all of my cryptocurrency questions. And he's an expert. And people go to me with questions a lot. He's the guy I go to with questions. He's an expert on Ethereum. He's an expert on smart contracts. And we're going to compare and contrast Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think that's something that a lot of people out there are interested in. And then, cross your fingers, a few episodes down the line, I'm hoping to get Foursquare founder Dennis Crowley on the show, and we can talk about entrepreneurship, we can talk about some of the emerging technology out there that gets us excited, uh, that are places to find opportunities. We're going to learn something new from every guest. Now, today's episode was a little bit, uh, a little bit different. But, and it was a risk, but I'm really happy with the way today's show turned out. So enjoy. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Imagine yourself in some distant future. And you're in an attic, or a basement, or maybe a storage space of sorts, and you're going through the belongings of a departed relative. You come across an envelope that says, important. Now you don't know what's in it, but let's say the person gave you the right to go through these particular belongings so you can open the letter, and you take out the contents of that letter, and sure enough, there's a piece of paper with some writing on it. But it's not writing you can understand. In fact, it's not in any language known to you. It appears to just be a jumble of numbers and letters. What do you make of this? Well, suppose that your departed relative was some kind of cryptographer or even just a hacker. Could this be really important? Maybe it was uh, something that was important a long time ago and it's not important anymore, but how can you really know? I mean, this is some uh, Da Vinci Code level intrigue here. So. Personally, I'd save it because there's a lot you can do uh, to get to the bottom of this message. I'm sure you can go online and find a bunch of heuristics that say what the message means. But suppose it's some custom-made cipher. Uh, There's cryptographically secure ciphers where you absolutely need to find the key to decode it. But then there's everything else where machine learning can actually come to the rescue. Most people think of machine learning as a magic box, but I want to make this box a little clearer today. My good friend Aaron provided some messages for me to decrypt using a simple message called a substitution cipher. Uh, And I wrote some code. It's short and understandable. I'll link to it online. And at the end of the episode, you're actually going to have some intuition for how this all works. It's based on Bayesian inference, my theme for this show. 
and uh, some real machine learning. It may not be big data machine learning, it's more like small data machine learning, but uh, the elements are there. We also found some great examples of the techniques we used being used to write fake novels and hack political redistricting. So without further delay, let's get Aaron on the show. Welcome back to the show, Aaron. It's good to be here. All right, so let's talk about what we did. Uh, I think we originally set up this project to showcase the power of Bayesian statistics and Bayesian inference and how it's actually used in AI and machine learning. But I think we ended up learning a lot more than we expected. So let's talk about these jumble of letters and spaces that you gave me. How did you generate those and what was the purpose of the project? Yeah, so you gave me a couple of constraints. One was 27 characters, so that's the 26 letters plus spaces, so that it's a little bit easier to discern what are actually words. And uh, I, I had to do a, a one-to-one letter substitution on those using, uh, I suppose I, I could have hand-picked the, solution, the, uh, the substitution uh, key yeah, so- for that, uh, but, I, but I actually used a, a random generator to produce one, so there wasn't any human bias entering into that. Right, so let me just um, let, let me just explain what's happening here. You created, you built some messages, you know, uh, some text in English, and the text had letters and it had spaces, and you created a substitution, so each letter got turned into another letter. There's kind of like a uh, key where you have a table of the 27 letters on one end, and then the letter that they get changed into on another end, and exactly each letter gets changed into exactly one letter, and each letter can be produced from exactly one other letter. So it's a very simple kind of cryptography. It's, it's not a, a cipher that is very secure. It's something that we've learned to solve many years ago. I wouldn't recommend using it if you don't want people to uh, hack your messages, because as you could see here, I hacked it in very few lines of code. But uh, it is an interesting for illustration because when you send me the encrypted messages, it really just looks like a jumble of letters and spaces, right? Yeah, and, and it's, it's at least better than, than its uh, kind of simple predecessor, the, what is it, the, the Caesar cipher. What is the Caesar cipher? It's also a substitution cipher, but it's strictly a rotational one. So okay. where, whereas... My, yeah, my, my key is randomly assigned between the clear text letter and the encrypted letter with a Caesar cipher. It's just, I'm going to rotate the alphabet 13 letters. So there's, gotcha. there's even fewer possibilities, and it's a lot easier to detect patterns in that. Yeah, and one, and one of the cool things, is so the idea on my end was, uh, and I'm going to go through how, how I did this, is I was going to write some code that was going to crack all of your ciphers, and I did all of them except for one, and we'll talk to you about that in a little bit. So let's talk about the keys. Each key is a rotation of the 27 different letters. How many possible... Well, a substitution. I, I, a substitution of the 27 different letters. It's also a permutation, right? Yep. As we talked about, how many different possibilities of the twenty of the uh, how many different possible keys are there? Can you try each one? Well, it turns out that mathematically there are twenty-seven factorial possible keys to check, and that's a really large number. Do you know what order of magnitude twenty-seven factorial is? I, I was about to punch that into Google because uh, yeah. I, I know it's big, but I couldn't guess what yeah what the what the number of zeros on that is going to be. All right. Well, let me. Let me do that. I'll do log 27 factorial divided by log 10. That's, uh, 
Yeah, that's a number with 28 zeros. That's a big number. You really can't check every single one. It's just not possible. And so it's a huge number. It's actually larger. So one of the earliest uh, examples of, of code breaking when it comes to uh, computer technology is Bletchley Park in World War II, where the, the codes from the German Enigma machine were decrypted. Um, the German Enigma machine actually has less possibilities than this one. It's actually less than 27 factorial. I don't remember what it is, but it's harder to decrypt because it's a rotation of the letters, but the rotation changes every single letter that you type. So it, you know, it, it becomes much more jumbled. But we can look at this one as a good illustration of how you would approach this problem. So when you were sending this out, did you have any ideas on how you might approach the problem? What were you thinking? I don't know if you have any background in cryptography or any experiences that uh, would give you an intuition on what to do. N nothing extensive. Um, I, I know that uh, letter frequency is, is a big tool used there, and so that's probably where I would start. You know, e is the most, most commonly used letter in the English language, and, and there are tables that break it down beyond that, but that, that's only going to get you so far. And one thing that I, I think you ended up using, which I've heard of in the context of cryptography, but haven't worked with myself, is this the concept of engrams. But uh, yeah. that's, like I said, stuff I've heard of, but haven't really used. So I'll let you fill in some of the blanks there. Let's say if we were trying different keys, I mean, we can't try all 27 factorial, but uh, we can try some of them. And let's say we wanted you have, I give you one possible key, and then I give you another possible key, and then I give you another possible key, and then you use those keys to decrypt it. And then you look at the resulting letters. Well, if the key is correct, uh, as a human, you can tell it's correct, right? And if it's close to correct, as a human, you can tell it's close to correct. Because like, that looks like English with a few letters uh, skipped, or that looks exactly like an English phrase. So I understand that. Or if it's wrong, it'll just look like a, a jumble. So you agree that a human can tell the difference between a right answer and a wrong answer. And so the question is, can a machine tell the difference between a right answer and a wrong answer? And that's where Bayesian probability comes in. So in other words, each permutation is a hypothesis. There are 27 factorial of them. Now the prior in this case, the prior is pretty easy. I just set them all to be equally likely. I wasn't going to start thinking about, you know, what might Aaron have done. I think they, they were all equally likely. And like you said, you, you did generate them randomly. I did. Yeah. And, and I can yeah. share you, with you my code for how I did that. Uh, it's yeah. 80 something lines. And most of that is the interface to make it easy for me to type something into the console. The, All right, the, maybe the part yeah. actually doing the work is, is pretty short and simple. Um, All right, maybe I'll check that into to the GitHub uh, repository that I have for my code. Um, although I, I, my I will code... say that I, I should be suitably embarrassed because it's been a long time since I've written code, so I'm <laughs> sure it follows none of the standards of good pro programming. Well, maybe I can just keep mine because I have in my <laughs> Python code, I have, a, I have a way to do this as well because I had to... I had to test it. Um, okay, so uh, the, the priors are easy. So what's the posterior? The question is, I input a jumble of letters, and the jumble of letters that you give me, that's the data. And so I have the data. I have the hypothesis, which is the permutation. I could use that to permute the letters and get an answer. And so the question is, what's the probability of the answer that I'm seeing? 
And for that, you need to assign a probability to every single message in English. Now that sounds like a crazy hard task, doesn't it? I would imagine that much like you would need a million monkeys and a million typewriters to generate Shakespeare, that there are many, many uh, combinations out there that would be yeah. difficult to catalog. Yeah. Now, I think that, you know, our brains are actually doing something much more sophisticated to be able to tell English from non-English. But any system that assigns a probability to any string of characters is a language model. And some of them can be uh, very simple. So a simple one you mentioned already. Let's suppose that we imagine that a that the, the English language is generated by somebody just randomly typing letters, but they have some frequency to the way they type. So some letters are more frequent than others, but each letter is random compared to the letter before. Now, I know that's not really true, but let's suppose that that's the assumption that we make. And so what the computer is going to do, the computer is going to read a whole bunch of text. And, uh, and I do this, I, you know, I, I read in a whole bunch of text. I can actually create the language models and, you know, Python has all sorts of great uh, tools to do that. But I kind of wanted to do my own just to show how, uh, how easy it is to do. So it reads actual English text. And then let's say it finds the frequency of the letters. It says, well, the most common one is, uh, you said E. Uh, that is the most common one, but actually, in this case, the space is going to be even more common than the E. And so let's say there's a certain probability each time a letter is typed that a space is typed, a certain probability that an E is typed, a certain probability that a T is typed, all the way down to like Z, X, and Q, right? And so the probability of a certain string is going to be the probability of each character multiplied together. Now, it's not a very good language model at telling English from non-English, but it does use some information in the English language. So actually, I think that if I were just to look at how letters are, the frequency of letters, I think if you gave me a really, really long piece of text, like a chapter, then the frequency of letters in the chapter would probably match the frequency of letters in the English language. But that's a very simple model of the English language. We could do, I did something a little more complicated. I looked at, like you said, engrams, which meant I looked at uh, sequences of letters. So some letters are more likely to go after others. You know, for example, TH, well, E becomes even more likely, or space TH, then E becomes even more likely, right? And then another space after the TH becomes less likely because that's not really a word. And then to add to that, I actually had to build a dictionary of words. So it's actually more likely that you're going to say a full word than not a full word. And so there's kind of, what that does is that there's a certain probability that each one is the space. And then given that a certain one is the space, what's the probability of each word occurring? And then if something is not in my dictionary, well, it's like, what's the probability of uh, coming into a word that's not in my dictionary? And then given that, what's the probability of the letters that are within that word? So that was a jumble, but all I'm doing is assigning a score to each possible line of text. That's all you really have to think about. So that's our posterior, and that's kind of, a, that's kind of one part of it. Um, but then there's another problem which makes it very difficult. So we already addressed the how do you identify if it's actual English, because you've built up right. this kind of dictionary, so you can look at right. that. Uh, and and, and again, we talked about the, the, the huge solution space. 
Yeah. Well, right. The huge solution space is the other problem. So that, that's uh, our, our 27 factorial. Right, right. And so the question is, how do you search that huge, uh, that huge space? Now, I would argue that if you did search the whole space, if you searched all 27 factorial and you found the entropy of each one, which is really just the log of the probability. The, the problem with multiplying all these probabilities together is that they, they become very, very small. So you really want to deal in log space. But uh, I would argue if I tried all 27 factorial and I found the best one, then boom, I'd have the message. But that's not good enough. I don't have that much time. Uh, I can't wait until the heat death of the universe in order to <laughs> get this to work. So what you want to do is you want to have some kind of ingredients to search the space. Now, before I get into that, I want to go back to the language model a little bit because I think there's something that we forgot when it came to the language model. It turns out that it's a common technique in computer science and it assigns higher probabilities to messages that look like English and lower probabilities to messages that don't. And you found an article that was really cool about a fake Harry Potter book. Yeah, so they, they supposedly have this predictive keyboard algorithm that they fed all, is it all seven Harry Potter books to? Uh, and, and so I guess based on the frequencies of occurrence in those books, if you have a certain word, it knows what the most likely possibilities for the, the next word would be. And, and they, they cheated a little bit because I think they realized pretty quickly that if they simply used straight up statistics there, you'd get absolute word salad. So uh, they did what they refer to as... Uh, uh, a combination of algorithmic suggestion and authorial discretion. So n-gram word models is not enough. Now, what I did was my letters are n-grams. My words are just one gram. Uh, an improvement would be making words n-grams. But words are not n-grams. Words have very complex meanings and relationships to previous words that are not, you know, found just by modeling the sequence of words. And so uh, what they did was make it even more complex and more closer to reality so that it actually comes out like a book that looks somewhat sane. Yeah, and their approach is part science and, and part uh, art project. What's it called? Let me see this. It's called Harry Potter and the Portrait... Wait. Harry Potter and the Portrait of what looked like a large pile of ash. Is that what it's called? Yes, that, that, is, that is the title of, of their supposed book of which they published a single chapter. <laughs> Where can I read this? Oh, wait, wait, wait. They have, they have uh, different sentences there. Ron was standing there and doing a kind of frenzied tap dance. He saw Harry and immediately began to eat Hermione's family. <laughs> Ron's shirt was just as bad as Ron himself. Harry looked around and then fell down the spiral staircase for the rest of the summer. Okay. It's got some elements of the book, but it's kind of funny how it puts it together. Yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's apparently not the first time they've done something like this. They, they've used this approach for an X-Files script and a, a number of other things. But I, I think the team that came up with it, they call themselves Botnik Studios. So let's talk about searching this space of... Uh, 27 factorial possibilities. Now, fortunately, it's not just a long list of 27 factorial permutations with no relationship to each other. There's a lot of what we would call, I think, in um, computer science, internal structure. And what that means is that some permutations are very similar to others. You know, for example, let's take the per permutation 
that is kind of like the Caesar cipher that puts every letter to like three letters ahead of it. And then let's suppose you take that one and you switch C and X. Well, those two are very similar, right? You can take one and you can make one switch. So I said that if I have a permutation and I make one switch, then those two are neighbors. And so if I want to search this space, I start at a random permutation and I hop from neighbor to neighbor. Now, if I just hop randomly, just a random walk, it's no better than searching all 27 factorial in some uh, sequential way because you're not getting any better as you go. But what I do is I take the random permutation, I check its entropy, and you want lower entropy. Uh, I check its entropy, I check one of its neighbors, and then I move to that neighbor if the entropy is higher. And so what I'm doing is I'm doing a random walk, but each swap that it does always makes the entropy look better and better. So in other words, it constantly does a swap to make the thing look more and more like English. So that makes me think of two things which are, are, are loosely related, uh, mostly in, in that they have to do with kind of this tr structure and walking a tree. But one is the all-time classic of uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, although I guess in this case, you're looking at 26 degrees of finding the solution. Um, exactly. And, exactly. And the other one is, uh, I guess there's a competitive sport of, of wiki wandering where they drop you into a page on Wikipedia and you have to, in the least number of moves possible, get to some other defined page. Oh, yeah. And this is absolutely related to that. And it's actually related to the page rank algorithm that Google first used to come out with the first version of their search engine. Right. Because they had to spider everything. Is, is that the correct right. term? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's talk about this. Um, it sounds like it might work, but uh, it also sounds like it might not work. It doesn't always work. Uh, so let's say you hop from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor, and then you come to a permutation and you check all possible neighbors. I think there's you know, 27 times 26 possible neighbors, uh, so some a few hundred, and none of them improve it. What, are, what happens then? Well, that is what's called a local maximum. I know a thing or two about that because that's the name of the show. That's a situation where you can't make it any better. So one thing that you can do is you could say, okay, that's a possibility. I'm going to keep that, but uh, now I'm going to start over. And I'm going to start from another random spot and then hill climb and then get to a local maximum. And I'm going to start from another spot and hill climb, and then I'm going to get to a local maximum. And essentially, you keep doing that, and each time you record the best one that you've seen so far. And then, eventually, you find ones that are better and better. And so that's kind of a first version of this. Now, there are some a few changes to this hill climbing algorithm that could make it run a little smoother. One change that I made that improved things a lot was that once it exhausted all one-letter swaps, it then looked at the two-letter swaps, and then that kind of sometimes got it unstuck. So that meant that there are fewer local maximum that it could get stuck in. Presumably that comes at the cost of your method taking, well, would that slow things down or? Well, each, each run of it, each run to find a local maximum takes longer, but each time it finds a better one. So generally a worthwhile trade-off, but I, I suppose if you were to extend yeah. that to, uh, you know, implementing three-letter and four-letter swaps, then you, you'd see a point of diminishing returns. At some point, sure. I don't know if that point is at three or four. 
One thing that I could add that I didn't was to actually store all of the permutations that you've seen so far and where they ended up. And so that way in the future, if you end up at a permutation you've seen before, it kind of skips all that and goes to another one. Now it doesn't always end up in the same place because it doesn't necessarily take the best swap. It only takes the first good swap it finds. So that's another possibility. You could have it take the best swap. So that would be the greedy algorithm. I didn't try that. I didn't need to try that. But with, with your algorithm, the way you implemented it, you do have the random restart when, when you hit a local maximum, you implemented that? Yes. So it would be possible that you could choose a, a new random starting point and end up right back at the same local maximum, even if that is not the actual solution to the problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that happens a lot. So you have to keep going and going and going. And then you just kind of pray that the, eventually they'll find the global maximum. Now, uh, another thing that I actually did implement that's a good thing to do at the beginning is something called Markov Chain Monte Carlo. And, well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of the equation on that, but it's a little bit more randomized. What it does is it tries a swap, and if the swap makes things better, it keeps it. But if it makes things worse, then sometimes it keeps it. So in other words, it sometimes moves around local maximum and kind of tends to fall to the higher portions and it doesn't like the lower portions, but uh, eventually it could kind of find its way around to uh, a higher maximum. So I run MCMC for about 1,000 tries and then I switch to hill climbing. So, so that's your first pass. Yeah, it's like the first 1,000 tries are MCMC and then wherever I end up, I end up with hill climbing. Now. You, there's also something called uh, simulated annealing. It sort of slowly goes from random walk to MCMC to uh, hill climbing. In other words, at the beginning, it's kind of wandering around. It can go anywhere it wants. Then it starts to prefer higher ones. And then by the end of the schedule, it only wants to go in the highest direction. So what that does is that's also a way that some people have used to make it more likely to find a global maximum or higher local maximum than it otherwise would have. But MCMC is a good way to have it kind of swim around at first and find a good place to start. Now, MCMC is used in a lot of places. If you have like the mathematical equation for a probability distribution, you want to pull a random point out of it, but there's no library to do that. MCMC is a great way to do that. Another area that it's used, and I found this article, and actually Stephanie, our guest from last week, helped me find this article, but it's a New York Times article about how MCMC is used for gerrymandering. Now in this case, in the United States, we have uh, these congressional districts that are drawn in states. Each state gets a certain number of congressional districts based on their population. Let's say, and in this example was Wisconsin, I don't know how many it has, but let's say it has eight congressional districts. Then Wisconsin, the legislature of Wisconsin has to break up uh, the state into eight different districts of roughly equal population. There are rules as to how equal they have to be, and they have to be roughly equal. But they could swap certain towns, even certain neighborhoods, in and out of congressional districts. So what it does is it will take one map, and then it will try to make a little bit of swaps, like let's swap this neighborhood for that neighborhood, and this neighborhood for that neighborhood. And they have some objective function for what they're trying to achieve, which is maybe, I don't know, get all of our people elected, or there are some important trade-offs in gerrymandering that make it a little more complicated because 
you know, you don't want to get all of your party elected and then have them all be very, very squeaker kind of close elections. So yeah, there's, there's a question in that. A, a, a lot of interesting commentary on, on this. I think 538 is, has written quite a bit on their blog about the different approaches to gerrymandering and how you can have solutions which perhaps satisfy all of the legal requirements but have drastically different effects on the political outcome and how there can be multiple solutions which can be objectively considered good but there are reasons you might want one over the other right so this uh, this article is about the wisconsin gop and i don't know if they used mcmc it sounds like they did but at least uh somebody who was studying how this can be done uh they were using markov chain monte carlo fascinating yeah and I'm sure maybe a little bit of hill climbing too. <laughs> we'll see. All right, so let's get to your messages. So I'm going to post the messages on the show notes page. And I was able to decrypt all of them except for one. So first of all, I, y- you came up with a bunch of messages. Some were much longer than others. Yeah, I, I tried to do a couple of things. Uh, when, when you were laying out the, the ground rules, you would, you would ask for a, a mixture of lengths because you, you knew right from the start that shorter ones were going to be more challenging and, and the more I gave you, the faster you'd be able to arrive at a definitive solution. So right. I had one really short one, which I, I think yeah. is the one that gave you trouble, and, and a couple yeah. of shortish ones, you know, a couple of sentences or a sentence or two, and then some that were a full paragraph. Right. So the longest one was the quote from Moby Dick, right? Yeah, which is, which is the entire opening paragraph. Right. And so that it got in like three seconds. And it's a lot of fun to find this to run. So if any of you guys out there are on GitHub and have Python, you can download this code and you can actually call and code text or decode text and see this stuff run. I'll post this on the, on the show notes page. I'll post my link to the GitHub account. You had a really short one. And I looked some of these up because it's kind of interesting where you got some of them. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Yeah, so that's a famous William Carlos Williams poem. It is like the original sorry, not sorry in literary form. Did you see the movie Patterson? I did not, although I did recently so, take out from the library a, uh, a book of children's poems inspired by this uh, called yeah. I'm Sorry I Meant to Do It, which I highly recommend. <laughs> well, that movie had a lot of his poems. and In fact, with that, if I hadn't watched that movie, I don't think I would have heard of William Carlos Williams, but... Uh, that was in it. So then you had another one where some interesting things happened and I posted two suggestions because it ran for a little while and then it got stuck. It found a a local maximum that was pretty good and it wasn't able to beat that for several minutes. And so it was stuck on this one and I already knew what it was going to be when I was reading it. If I could read it, it was in the besen of nizes, it was in worsen of nizes. It was an ace of wisdos. It was an ace of foolish guess. It was an epoud of belief. You know, you could tell that this is, uh, well, what is that? I know this is from Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Tale of Two Cities. Tale of Two Cities. Oh, my God. I same same era, I think. Same uh, era. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I'm not very good at... Uh, people who are, are more knowledgeable in, literature. in Victorian literature are, yeah. are going to so be anyway, outraged that we've squished two genres together there. But Okay. Well, I, maybe I'll edit that. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, it, I let it run for another 15, 20 minutes, and then it got, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I have a number of iterations that it takes. We'll see what it is. Uh, 
So here was an interesting one. You had two quotes from The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien. You must have what, gotten it out. One of is the opening sentence of The Hobbit, and one is the opening sentence of the, the first Lord of the Ring books. Okay, okay. So, but, but they are both Tolkien, and, and right. he has perhaps a distinctive style. Okay, so this was an interesting one. So it, it got it a little bit off. Uh, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and oozy smell. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Now, in this one, it actually said there lived a hobbit, and it was a hobbit hole. In other words, it changed the B to a P. And I think we could actually guess why this happened, given what the solution was. Uh, hobbit was obviously not in the dictionary. And so it was trying to figure out, okay, what's the more likely English word, hobbit or hobbit? And both of them seem maybe roughly equal. And if it were much longer, switching all the Bs for Ps will screw up some other words. But because this was a short enough clip, it didn't really screw much up. I think it turned the word... Um, yeah, bear some, became some, pear, and there might be something else in there. Right, right. So it turned one word into another real word. Now... If I used n-gram of words, then that might have also fixed it as well, which is how I'm going to try to crack that small one. But uh, yeah, I'm going to post all of these. There was um, part of the Gettysburg Address. I'm going to post all of these, and I'm also going to post the short one that I wasn't able to get. But uh, I was very happy with how it works. I wasn't. I really had not done this before. I wasn't sure how it was going to work. There were certain things that I was afraid of that you would do. I, you know, for example, I was afraid that you would take out all the spaces and I wouldn't be able to handle that. <laughs> That's a hint though. But another thing that I was afraid of is if my language model didn't have a certain type of text in there. And so if you look at the, you know, the corpus that I downloaded had a bunch of different kinds of text. It has conversational text and it has um, text from presidential debates. Yeah, that, that was going to be one has... of my questions was what did you use for your, your training source? Uh, and, and I tried right. to perhaps attack that in a couple of ways. If I wanted to be really mean, I, I would have taken something from Lord of the Rings in one of the passages in Elvish. But but we said, mm. stick to English. Um, yeah. And, and I well, now tried to mess with that a little bit because I, I did put some things in there from uh, perhaps antiquated English. And there's one in particular, which given the, the technique that you used, it probably didn't play into it very much. But uh, there's one from Huckleberry Finn. Okay. Which which has some some kind of dialect in it, right? But but since you're not necessarily looking at what words follow other words, that had less of a, an impact, I would expect. Yeah, yeah. And so in this case, the if you have a very limited training set, and I got the more limited one when I was first started testing it. You know, when you're engineering some code, you often iterate a lot. And so I started with just the Wikipedia article, a few paragraphs of the Wikipedia article on New York. And I kept trying like this phrase, hello, my name is Max, I'm from New York. And it, like it wouldn't be able to decode it because it was just too short. Um, <laughs> or, but I tried to type in stuff that was in the in, in the training set. But uh, yeah, if the training set is varied enough, the more complicated model would work. You had some Trump tweets in there. Of course, it has a variable number of spaces. It has some weird, like Fox News is written as a single word. And uh, Russians had no compromising information on Donald Trump Fox News. Of course not, because there is none and never was. This whole witch hunt is an illegal disgrace, and Obama did nothing about Russia. Some of that would seem to be very unlikely, 
with a straight up engram model. Yeah, it, again, the fact that you were working on words individually and not in sequence made that a little bit easier. Uh, and yeah. I, I was about to say, you know, there was a bunch of punctuation I, I had to chop out of there that would make it more sensible, but that's not right. always the case with Donald Trump tweets. The the punctuation uh, sometimes makes it more opaque, yeah. not less. Well, remember, I'm chopping out the tr- the punctuation on my side in the training, too. Right. So it's using that. Um, but it's a good thing you're not on Twitter, because if you were on Twitter, I would just use your Twitter feed to build the language model. <laughs> and then... After I did that, I would just write a Twitter bot that tweets things that you would write. An- another reason uh, that, that I have shied away from certain social media. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the follow-up to this is this short one, which I'm going to read it out loud because it's only, I think, 19 letters, 20 letters or something. B Y P P C V A C M. Z-Q-V-Y-A-P. I was not able to crack that. I tried cracking it on my own. I saw it started with a B-Y-P-P, that double letter. I was thinking it's some kind of hello world type thing. Um, It came up with a lot of suggestions, call, um, tell for the first word, and and hello, and other words like that. Uh, But none of the words that it came up with, none of the trials that it came up with had it either split it up into two or three words and it was not able to find one that really made sense. I also found in some of my own investigation that the real one doesn't always have the best entropy just because the language model is not sophisticated enough to handle this. So maybe if I did uh, a bigram model or a trigram model, it would be better. But don't tell me what it is. I'm going to give it a shot and also I'm going to post it online and see if any of the listeners can get it. Okay, that, that, this is going to be difficult for me not to spill the beans. Um, but Don't. but one thing that you'd mentioned earlier um, that, that I wanted to kind of circle back to, you said it would have been much more challenging if you chopped out the space, if I chopped out all the spaces and, and just right. done everything as, as a run-on series of characters. Um, and right. I, I wanted to throw out, that is one thing that they did in the, uh, in the Enigma cipher. Uh, I think it was four-letter groups, and, and that was without regard to actual word spacing. Uh, so that's, that's pretty oh, common in cryptography that for, for, yeah. for precisely that reason, uh, because spaces, while, while being empty, uh, provide a huge amount of information to the person reading it or the person trying to decrypt it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for the word model, it, in terms of the finding the neighbors, really what it does is selects a space first, and then it just moves around and keeps the space constant. Each trial picks a different letter for space, but it kind of uses the letters that might be space. So it's uh, it really chopped it down almost from 27 factorial to 26 factorial times a few. That's a big speed up. Well, and I'm being pedantic, but yeah, it's, it's really 27 factorial minus one because uh, you can assume that I'm not going to use the uh, unencrypted key as the solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, why would I assume that? Your, uh, you know, your thing could, uh, could produce that. But anyway, that's not an order of magnitude difference. No. So I'm not worried about it. There are probably a lot of them that are too close to, you know, too close for comfort. Yeah, I, I, um, didn't, I didn't make a point of, of checking yeah. each one after I generated it to you know say is yeah. is that too close? But I, I did glance at them and I 
I certainly don't think I saw anything that was obvious of of being remotely similar to the source text. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, it's just a, it's just an extremely unlikely thing. Um, another thing that I could do with the small one, and I'm going to try this, is with the small one, there's much less than 27 factorial because there aren't even 27 letters in the text. There are much less. So um, it's still a pretty big number to try, but it might be within the window of possibility. So I'll have to look at that, now, particularly if you choose a space. How, how long did you say it took you to run for a, a typical one of these uh, for, for you to come with, up with a solution? Oh, you said somewhere some real of them, quick. Some of them were real quick. Some of them were within 10 seconds. Uh, but the, the middle ones, the kind of smaller ones, they could take up to 10, 15, 30 minutes to an hour um, and would take like a thousand trials or something like uh, that, that. That was going to be my other question is how, how many attempts does that equate to? Yeah, I think I set it to 10,000 total and then it stops, but usually gets it within the first several hundred. Is this your awkward pause, Aaron? <laughs> I, we got to have at least one. So you're going to post this along with the episode. I will share my key generation code with you. And, and if you want to post that as well, you can. Uh, like I said, it's it's not elegantly written, but it's it's in C. Yeah. And, and It can be seen that it was literally, it was in two separate places. So, yep, that was a lot of fun. I think we learned a lot from it. And I think it's uh, something really interesting that we can refer back to. And uh, I think it was a great learning experience. Absolutely. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thank you. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. It'll feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna see me shine.